The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, put down that Vegemite sandwich and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 587 with guest Ted Neward, recorded live Monday, June 28, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Silverlight 4 video training with Billy Hollis on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And now... The man who's slightly disappointed that the water in Australia goes down the drain clockwise. Same as America. Carl Franklin! Thank you very much. This is Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. Hey, man, where are we? We are on the Gold Coast of Australia, uh, about an hour's north of Brisbane. And we just recorded this intro uh, on Monday night. Well, it's... Yeah, it's Monday night back yeah, home. It's, Monday it's night Tuesday back morning home. here yeah, in Tuesday Australia. Tuesday morning here. But anyway, we want to tell you that we're at Tech Ed Gold Coast in Australia. We'll be at Tech Ed New Zealand next uh, week. And right. we're going to be doing all sorts of things here and bringing back some fun for our listeners as well. But uh, this show, of course, was recorded during the live weekend. So as there's many shows recently. Yeah. But just, um, we, Richard, we got to tell the listeners about the new stuff that's coming up with our show that affects them greatly. You've been busy, 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 my friend. Yeah. So first thing that's going to happen is we're getting a new website. Yay. Yay. Search capability, a big plus. Um, searching archives, searching. Uh, we also are going to have a... Uh, you know what you call it? Those the 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 tag uh, tag clouds. Tag clouds. Yeah, that's exactly the word I was looking for. Tag clouds. And uh, we're making a new publishing system. We figured out that people are listening to MP3s. Right. They're not listening to those to the other file format. Well, and, and let's face it, the website we've got today is based on almost pre-podcasting when format different formats were more important. And right. People were burning CDs, and a yeah. lot of that stuff has just fallen by the wayside. So we're going to MP3 only. Right. We're going to have one listen now button, one download now button, and one feed. And the feed is going to contain all of the shows. Right. We're not going to have in the separate master feed. We're getting rid of feed burner. We're going directly back to our master feed at pop.com. And uh, our publishing system has been rewritten in Silverlight and uh, all that good stuff. So, so a that, lot of things are simplified. A lot of things are being simplified, yeah. And just trying, trying to make, make it easier easy. for you to get the show. Exactly. 
Um, if you got any suggestions, of course, send them to .netrocks at franklins.net. And as you heard in the intro, we have a new DVD at franklins.net. It's Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4. Wow. Yeah, these are videos that we recorded uh, in April when Billy came up for a few days to the studio. And uh, it's the same as the Sahil videos. You know, he was basically showing the stuff and I was asking questions. And I learned a lot about Silverlight so much that I'm now actively writing applications in it, thanks to Billy. And uh, I hope you will like it too. So go to franklins.net or www.franklins.net for more information on that. And uh, one more thing I want to say is Infusion Development is still looking for really, really smart people. And um, they haven't gone away. They've been increasing their business, but they're really ramping up um, a lot more. And they need a lot more good developers, so they come through us. And they're friends of ours. We don't usually do recruiting, but since they are friends, we're, we're helping them out. Offices in New York, Toronto, London, and Dubai. Right. Uh, Dubai is really heating up. No pun intended. <laughs> so if you're interested in traveling the world, send me an email, carl at franklins.net, and I will hook you up with them. All right, now let's uh, roll the show from the live weekend with Ted Neward. Carl and Richard here, .NET Rocks Live Weekend. We're live streaming with Ted Neward. Hi, Ted. Hey, how you doing? We're well. Did you see the Java Zone trailer, Java Forever, for the Java no. Zone conference? You didn't? No, I did not. I did oh, not. my God. This is probably the... I, I mean, and I hate it when when somebody out-clevers us, you know? I but, miss this too, man. You have to you tell me this, this story. You miss this too? Okay. So what's... This is Java Zone's so conference? So at the Oslo Spectrum, yes. they had the Java Zone conference. It was coming up right after uh, the, the, NDC. Know, the NDC. Right. right. Well, you know how they did a little animation for us, Richard? Yeah. Well, they... Uh, the Java Zone people hired, like... DreamWorks or somebody that does movie trailers to do a trailer for a movie at, called Java Forever, and the it starts with a little kid in bed and a father, you know, tucking him in. It's like, Dad, why do we use .NET? <laughs> <laughs> and the father's like, That's preposterous. What? You know, he's like, can't believe he's hearing it. You know, and then he's grown up. He's a teenager sitting at son, Mom, Dad. I use Java. Clink, like the forks <laughs> drop on the plates, you know? It's hilarious. It, it's really, really well done. <laughs> Even though it's so subversive, you know, towards .NET, it's hilarious. That's funny. So if you go to Utah, I, I can actually play it here. You can hear, hear the uh Yeah, let's at trailer. least hear the audio of it. Yeah, the, tr the audio is pretty good. Let me find it here. Yeah, if you click at the exact same time that Carl does, it, it, it'll be like you're watching it over the radio. There you go. No, it's made private. Man, it's like not available now. Oh, All no. Right, so I'll keep looking for it. Yeah. You okay. guys talk. So discuss. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, be, I'll be right back. I will find it, and I'll be right back. Hey, Ted, speaking of Java, doesn't Oracle own Java now? Yes, they do. What's yes, it? they do. As a matter of fact... Um, Oh, I don't remember how long ago it was, but we we, uh, we spent a, a DNR talking about this. Um, well, and, we, well, I think we talked about the Sun, the ramifications of Sun being acquired by Oracle. Right. I got oh. it. I got it right here. Oh. Java Zone Entertainment. They, they appear to be the perfect family. They export their all the 
slik at det blir tilgjengelig. Oh, Norwegian. Yeah, it's in Norwegian. So But let sometimes there are, appearances, there are subtitles. Kid father's reading to his family. son, and he says, export all Ole objects with the command line so that they will be available for internet information. But the kids sometimes appearances can be Steven Springberg production. Dad? Why do we always use .NET? What do you mean? Are there no other development platforms? Closes the book. I think it's time for you to go to sleep. As a young boy discovers a new world unfolding. Java coffee cup. Look how beautiful, robust, secure, portable, and scalable Hey, what are you guys up to? We're just enjoying some porn. Hope you're not doing Java and open source. No. Good. For being young is all about experimenting. What are you doing in there? Nothing. Hello. Yeah, I'm almost done. Dinner table. Merry Christmas. But a secret can't stay a secret forever. Dad? Mom, I have a confession to make. I use Java. What the hell are you talking about? I want to use a programming language which doesn't only run in Windows. That's just wrong! Portability has never been a priority for Microsoft, and you know it. My son is a monster! One of the most compelling dramas of our time. Microsoft gives us .NET-based applications that share information with other applications via web servers. They actually enable us to send XML messages! He's packing and leaving. Through soap! Through soap! Shouldn't you be able to make your own choices based on your own needs, Dad? Tattoo Java on his arm. The father is destroyed. Dad? <laughs> All right, so you get the idea. <laughs> really well done. You know, the Europeans seem to have this uh, this habit of doing things like this. Uh, the uh, DevOx conference, what used to be called Java uh, Javapolis in Antwerp, they actually did a video with a guy who is, if he's not James Gosling's twin brother, then he should be. And it was basically, and I can't believe they, they, they did this, but it was essentially, you know, Java guys stalking James Gosling. Like, you see him coming out of his house, and then a little bit later, you see a picture of him standing at the urinal, and people are just kind of stalking him, like, in documentary fashion. It was, ah. just, it was just hilarious. That's funny. Yeah. Now, some really clever stuff being done out there, and with a, with a great sense of humor about it as well. Mm-hmm. So what be- is going on in Java? Yeah, that's what I think we were, were before this video invaded. Right. Uh, so, you I know, mean, do uh, they have generics yet? <laughs> <laughs> I hate you, Carl. What? What? It's a simple question. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, Java's had generics for for quite a while, like just roughly at about the same time that that .NET got them, but they're generics completely at the compiler level. So, you know, you you. You compile something generically, and then after it's done, everything is done in terms of object references. It's uh, it's academically this is known as type erasure. Huh? Weird. Okay. Yeah. And well, it's... part of the concern was backwards compatibility. I mean, you know, Neil Gafter and, and Joshua Block are, are two of the the uh, really bright guys. There's, you know, Josh and Neil are kind of the equivalent of of Microsoft's Eric Meyer. I mean, just scary bright guys. Mm-hmm. 
and they go into long discussions about you know why this was necessary and so forth. But sort of the pervading theme that comes out is one of backwards compatibility. We were concerned about having like you know two different uh, libraries, one one with generics, one without. You know, which is exactly the path that Microsoft went. And you know, in the Microsoft space, it doesn't seem to have caused us too much pain. But Java, you know, a lot more years, a lot more legacy code out there, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. At, at the end of the day, I think they made a mistake, but, yeah, I, it, nobody asks me my opinion. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, we do, but okay. So, well, yeah, okay, all right. You guys do, but apparently nobody in the Java space cares. There you go. I'm just, you know, when we talked right after the Sun acquisition had occurred and nothing had really changed at that point, and I've continued mm-hmm. to care to keep an eye on it, and then uh, I guess it was about a month down the road. I went. I typed in www.sun.com and went yep. to the Oracle homepage. Yep. And I thought the only thing missing from this page is Larry Ellison giving you the finger, because everything else <laughs> is there. There was no mention of Sun. There was nothing. Just you're Oracle now. Shut up and sit down. <laughs> <laughs> but say well, no wimpy Microsoft application. Yeah, but th- that changed again. I think they must have gotten enough flack that now when you actually you go to – I'm just going to double-check this. When you now you go to Sun, it actually takes you to a page on the Oracle site that says, we've acquired uh, Sun now. We're slowly crushing the life out of its remaining employees, and we'll no, no, send no, no, you no, their no, no, dead no. I got to contradict you there because <laughs> I've got a couple of friends at Sun on the inside who oh, really? are actually cautiously optimistic about uh, what's going on. One of the things that they're, they're seeing, I mean, you know, I, I, I try to be fair to Microsoft when I'm chatting with my Java buddies, so I'm yep. going to try to be fair to Oracle here, too, which is a very new feeling for me, by the way. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that they're talking about is, you know, he's, he's getting, this, this one buddy of mine, he's getting phone calls from, like, Oracle VPs who are basically calling him to say, tell me what I don't know. Tell me what I don't understand. Right. And, you know, I mean, they're, they're genuinely trying to gather uh, information from, from, you know, ex-Sun employees, people who were brought over as part of the acquisition, in order to figure out kind of what to do next. But one of the things he says that's, that's really sort of encouraging, you know, number one, they're actually soliciting information, but number two, one of the problems at Sun was that it was always kind of this consensus-driven company. Right, we have to like you know get everybody in the company to agree on something before we actually make a decision, and as a result, the company always felt like it was kind of wishy-washy, like it was kind of you know not really going in any particular direction. Decisions by committee, exactly. And you know now Oracle, they're at least willing to make decisions. I mean, they might be the wrong decisions, which is why the fact that they're you know getting information and why they're you know actually soliciting for ideas is important. But they're actually willing to basically plant a stake in the ground and say, yes, we're going this way, come hell or high water. Right. And, you know, the thing that bothers me a little bit, Richard, is the fact that I'm seeing a lot of that consensus stuff occurring within Microsoft. And so there's a part of me that's wondering if we're not going to see Oracle make a few decisions that, you know, Microsoft is going to be kind of, you know, reeling from. Because a lot of the discussions I'm hearing, a lot of the discussions I'm seeing within Microsoft are all this, you know, we have to build consensus, we have to get everybody's view on it, we have to make sure we're not going to annoy other parts of the company. There's much more of a consensus-driven mentality at Microsoft than there was in years past. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't argue with you there, no. but it, you know, that's interesting is you really don't have any sense from Microsoft right now that this Oracle Sun deal is a big deal. They haven't announced anything yet. And, and I think the big thing here is that Sun has struggled under imminent bankruptcy for so many years mm-hmm. that everyone wrote them off. They can't do anything. They have no money. Well, Oracle's right. got money. If they decide to start making some moves, they can afford to make it. And uh, they're sitting on enough bits and pieces to actually have a stack. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they've got more of a stack than Microsoft does, right? They've got a stack all the way down to the hardware level, which Microsoft lacks. They've right. got physical servers. Yeah, this is, you know, I, I think in some ways the reason why you haven't seen anything from Microsoft is just, A, this move came out of nowhere. Nobody had this one on, you know, pegged on their radar anywhere. Um, you know, there, there was initially, like in the months before this, IBM had said, yeah, yeah, we, we might be interested in buying Sun. And everybody said, oh, IBM buying Sun. Wow, that, that's coming out of nowhere. And usually when two giants make this kind of a, a you know, move, rarely do you see such a rapid turnaround to you know, give up off of one and then somebody else jumps in that quickly. And the deal goes through, relatively speaking, that quickly. I don't think Microsoft, I mean, this is one of those situations where if this is, you know, nations and war and so forth, this is the moral equivalent of a Pearl Harbor. I mean, this, is, this was just out of nowhere. And I think Microsoft was caught flat-footed. They had, they had no prepared scenarios for this. And I think in some respects, they're trying to figure out what to do right now. I don't know I mean, that it's a Pearl Harbor is a good, uh, good ana- uh, analogy. And by the way, you have always done poorly with military analogies. <laughs> Vietnam boy. Uh, yeah, because there's no Arizona, right? Nothing sunk here, you know, which you've got as a detente right. that, that we don't quite understand the ramifications of yet. And, uh, and well, yeah, it's, it's, you know, in some respects, you're right. There's no, you know, there's, there's no physically sunk ship. So I'll have to search my memory for a better analogy, but this is definitely, you know, this is definitely too, uh, two two major powers getting together and, and forming a superpower that you know Microsoft has not really had to face before. You know, plus I mean, part of the thing is Microsoft. This is one a, a different concern, but it's a similar kind of concern. Microsoft is really facing so many challengers on so many fronts. You know, they're 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 getting uh, challenges from Google in terms of the search space, which you know Microsoft themselves dove into. But they're also getting challenges from Google in terms of the mobile space, as right. well as getting challenges from Apple in the mobile space. I mean, actually, it's probably fair to say that Microsoft is trying to challenge Apple in the mobile space. Yes. And, you know, you're seeing, um, you know, so much challenge in terms of, you know, what they're doing in terms of the, 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 the languages and so forth, right? On, in the, the um, Visual Studio space, you've got F-sharp. In the Java space, you've got Scala, and now the the media darling appears to be Clojure, and you've got Groovy, and you know Microsoft is trying to respond by you know continuing to revamp C Sharp, which is creating some angst for their own developers. You know, oh my gosh, this is revving so quickly. Slow down, slow down. I, they're just getting challenged on so many fronts. It doesn't feel like they have any solid place to rest and relax. I mean, even the operating systems. Um, something like you know the, the the Mac the MacBook is like the best selling laptop ever, and Apple has and I forget some of the crazy statistics, but I think they're selling 
more copies of Mac OS than, than Microsoft is selling Xboxes or, or Windows or I don't know what it is. I mean, the point simply is there's, there's, they're seeing some serious challenge across all these different uh, fronts, all these different spaces. The, you know, at, at this point, I fully expect that Star Office is actually going to sell a copy somewhere in the world. <laughs> and then Microsoft Whoa. will feel like it's over, it's done. We just give up and lay that, down and die. That is the 12th seal of the apocalypse. Yes, yeah, right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Which horseman is that? <laughs> Yeah, you know, there was some great – there was a, a weird little article posted a little while ago talking about uh, Microsoft's response to, uh, you know, people predicting the demise of Microsoft and so forth. And, you know, still obviously a massive, massive company that makes a tremendous amount of money. You know, it's it, it may have a market cap that's been exceeded by Apple's, but it's no, you know, it's many times more profitable. It's many times more seats. You know, Windows and Mac OS are not comparable. It's what six or seven percent of the market versus ninety percent of the market. The number of Linux servers in the world, by per, as a percentage, has actually declined in recent years. You mm-hmm. know, but that being said, you know, it hasn't been a good time for Microsoft. They are besieged. There is a lot of stuff going on at once, and I do think this Oracle Sun thing is off the radar. Yeah, and and now that I'm going down my repertoire of military analogies, I'm <laughs> wondering if we don't see if Sun and Oracle aren't the the uh, consolidation of the kingdoms of Mongol and mm-hmm. Attila the Huns about to roll west. Yeah, you know, I, I I I don't know that it's going to be quite that bad. For Microsoft, I mean, you know, I, I don't think we're going to see. I don't think it's going to require the death of, of Larry Ellison to stop the Huns from rolling all the way through Europe. <laughs> but, it, but the Larry idea that we that does make a certain amount of sense. I do, I do kind of give you credit there. You like that one? Yeah, okay, good. I like that one. I'll, I like I'll, that I'll one. make a note. But I think, I think, in some ways, you know, this is this is kind of you know because the Mongols were known for their speed and their quickness and and the fact that they could easily outflank. Their opponents, and I don't think Oracle has quite that degree of nimbleness and so forth. Um, but at the same time, this is a behemoth. I mean, this is going to be a this is going to be two superpowers slugging it out. And I think part of it, the, the, the bigger concern that I have, and, and I love the fact that you use the term Microsoft is besieged, because I think there's something of a siege mentality inside the company right now. I yes. think there is something of a, you know, it's us against everybody else. You know, we have to, you know, we, we have to somehow stand strong and we have to somehow fight them all. And, and part of the thing that's going on right now, it's interesting because, you know, all of the numbers and so forth that you quoted a few seconds ago off to one side, there is a growing shift, particularly within the geek community. You know, there's always sort of like the default answer. And if you're not using the default answer, then somehow you have to defend your decision. And that used to be the case for the Mac. Right. If you walked up to somebody with a Mac and they said, why are you using a Mac? You felt compelled to defend your decision. Well, you know, I do a lot of graphics or I do a lot of video or I do a lot of dot, dot, dot. And the Mac is better for that. And people will go, oh, I, I guess, okay, sure, whatever. All right. You're starting I, don't, to, I don't want to know what a file is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're starting to see some of that same kind of defensiveness mentality show up for, you know, with people who are using PCs. I mean, the fact that you know, you, you go to TechEd and there's all these people who are proudly wearing bumper stickers, I'm a PC, 
Yeah, well, it used to be that that was assumed. Why do you have to, you know, why do you have to say that out loud now? And if you go to a developer conference and you look out across, so this is particularly true at, at Java conferences, but it's growing true at other .NET conferences. You look out in the audience and you see a whole bunch of MacBook Pros there and people are looking at you like, oh, dude, you're still using a stink pad? What's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. You know, there's a change in, in, in attitude. There's a change in, in mentality here. And I think Microsoft is feeling it. And I think they need to do something. I, I really think they need to do something, anything, to try to get some of that momentum back. Because right now they're in a reactionary mode. You know, my, Apple does something and we have to do something to match that. That's not the way you win. That's the way you avoid losing. Right. You yeah. know where I'm going with this? Yeah. Well, I, mean, I think you're you're really speaking to where's the innovation coming from, right? And right. and you see this in a bit of a brain drain too. That the folks that lots of folks that we know uh, that uh, used to work for Microsoft that were the innovators have moved on to Apple or Google mm-hmm. or elsewhere mm-hmm. for that matter. But you know, yeah. that, there's an interesting side to that. There's plenty of smart people inside of Microsoft to, still, but it feels like we've lost a few real gems too. Hey Ted. Yes. What uh, what kind of development are you doing these days? So me, I'm doing a, a um, I'm still doing my usual mix of of Java and .NET. But one of the things I've started to get into a lot more is uh, more of the mobile development. Um, been doing a lot more in terms of uh, iPhone. I'm sorry, iOS. Um, I tell you that that name is awkward. It just doesn't roll off the. Are target. you turning about yeah. talking about iPhone slash iPad? It's the iPhone slash iPad slash iPod. Ah, yes. Um, so I'm doing some of that stuff. I'm also doing some Android development, and um, you know, as soon as I can get my hands on some hardware, I'm probably going to be doing some Windows Phone stuff as well. So, and you're using three different platforms to do all this, or you use Eclipse for Android, right? Actually, um, I'm not a big fan of Eclipse. Uh, I know, you know, being a Java guy, I'm supposed to love everything free and, and, and everything open source and whatnot. Well, but Eclipse well, hey, just, lunatic is on the grass, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, e- Eclipse just kind of sucks. Um, <laughs> I, just not really any good way to say that. Just it kind of sucks. I just, I, I, I can't stand it as an IDE. And uh, that's one of the things, you know, I, I've done some, some BlackBerry development in the past, and I'd kind of like to, to, you know, get into it a little bit more, except trying to get the BlackBerry plug-in for Eclipse to work with the latest version of Eclipse is basically a non-starter, and even trying to get the classic version of Eclipse, the 3.5, the previous version, to work with the current BlackBerry tools is also kind of a non-starter. So I'm not sure what exactly people writing BlackBerry apps are doing these days until BlackBerry comes up with a 3.6 version of the tools and yada yada yada. Um, but that's you know that's a another Java-based environment, and so that's kind of you know uh, that should be a low-hanging fruit for me to pick up and run with. But yeah, I mean, principally looking at all the different. Um, mobile platforms. Um, when I'm doing Android, basically I just do, you know, command line builds, Ant and a text editor builds. And Windows Phone will obviously be Visual Studio because, I mean, that just makes too much sense. And the Objective-C, the iPod, Pad, Phone, Peed, whatever, um, <laughs> that's, that's all Xcode, which is yet another of my not favorite IDEs, but at least it's, you know, 
it's more serviceable. It's 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 in some cases more what I expect than the way Eclipse does things. Objective C. Yes. Yes. Have you played with this language before, Richard? No, we we've talked to people that have done it. I I haven't done. It. I know Richard hasn't either. But in in looking at it, um, you know, we understand what's missing. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff missing. Um, yeah. It's it's an interesting language. Um, you know, this is this is the picture of an object oriented language that kind of goes the other direction from C plus plus because I mean, that's literally how far back it goes back in the. Uh, mid-80s, I think it was, uh, when Bjarne Strustrup was looking at objects and saying, you know, he wanted to do something that was more statically, strongly typed, there was another guy, uh, Brad Cox, who said, yes, I would like to do a object-oriented C as well, but I'm going to do something that's more small talkish." And Objective-C was the result. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting language, and it's definitely got a number of interesting ideas to it. But probably the biggest thing is the fact that really it's been stagnant for so long that there's a lot of things that you know uh, you what well, things that you would normally expect. Uh, case in point, the ability to just pass around you know blocks of code, things which are very common in other dynamic languages. Thinking of Ruby, thinking of Python, etc., which you cannot do in Objective C. They're supposed to. It's supposed to be coming in a later version of the language. Um, but as far as I can tell, there's been no estimates as to when that later version is supposed to actually come to us. It wasn't there in the, the latest revision of the iOS uh, drop. Maybe Xcode 4, because right now they're at like 3.2.something. Hmm. You know, it, it's just it's kind of like, wow, I, I really feel in some ways manual memory management. There's no garbage collection here whatsoever. Yeah. You know, it just really feels like I've stepped back into a time portal and I'm back somewhere in 1995. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who want me to tell you about JustMock, Telerik's mocking tool. And unlike most mocking tools, JustMock can work with non-virtual methods, sealed classes, and static methods and classes, giving you complete control over your code. And of course, you get that great Telerik quality and support. You can read more and download the tool at Telerik.com slash JustMock. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash Telerik. Yeah, and Ted, um, we we sit here with our .NET goodness and C Sharp and our garbage collector and everything, and development is wonderful and peachy and lovely for us. And we look at Objective-C and we go, yuck, but it should be noted that even though it's apparently difficult for us, uh, you know, imagining working with it is difficult or even working with it is difficult mm. that it has been wildly successful because of the of the iPhone and the of the iPhone and it turns out that it you know if the economic incentive is there for developers to use a particular language doesn't really matter well i think there's a couple of things that we have to we have to be careful about i mean yes let's let's you know but Start with the the, the the biggest part of that statement, which is yes, the iPhone, iPod, etc., has been wildly successful. Granted, no argument there. There's you know any way you look at it, you know in, in many respects, I'm, you know for for ten years the Java community has been holding up Java and saying this is the year that mobile will be big. 
And in 2009, 2008, mobile finally became big because of Apple. It had nothing to do with Java whatsoever. You know, Microsoft has been saying the same thing for years as well. This is the year mobile will be big. And, it, you know, it took a company who really changed the game, <clears throat> you know, largely because of that touch-based interface that really made mobile big. And Apple gets full credit for that, I think. What's astonishing to yep. me is that the quality of development tools, or rather lack of quality of development tools, really doesn't appear to have been an impediment to the phone's success. Well, part of the thing is, you know, the, the, the thing that... The thing that, from a development perspective, the thing that you're really missing uh, as a developer, I mean, the Objective-C language, you know, it's different. You have to take a different mentality to it. And I think, quite frankly, there's a lot of that mentality that, that C-sharp developers could actually benefit from now that we have dynamic in the language. There's an interesting uh, design paradigm there that, that C-sharp developers could start to, to jump in on and take advantage of if they understand it and see how it works. But the big thing that Xcode, the big thing that, that Objective-C doesn't give us is that automatic memory management. And quite frankly, the, uh, you know, the, the iOS handles this pretty well in the sense that, you know, um, if, after a while, if we see that your application is, is starting to run away, allocating too much memory, et cetera, et cetera, we're just going to shut you down. Right. You know, if you're ever using an iPhone app and all of a sudden it just quits, that's the operating system basically saying, oh, there was a memory leak here, or there was a, you know, an attempt to free the same pointer twice, and bang, you're dead. And you at least they don't again. put up a general protection fault. Yeah, uh, yeah. well, that's the thing that they didn't do, right? Yeah. That's the one thing that they, so you don't even realize it's just the app quit on you, and you're like, oh, that's weird. So you start it up again, and you know, you you're back to the beginning. Reinstall it or whatever. But it's also a different context. You're in a phone. You, yeah. There's right. no such thing as a long-lived app in a phone. Right, right. There's no long-lived battery in a phone. They're doing management, memory management by lack of power. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that you, when you switch away or switch to a different app, it kills that app. That's another form of memory management. It is, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Right. So they've, they've made a number of really good decisions to make that uh, feasible, to make that possible. And this is, you know, a lot of people were really sort of champing at the bit, sort of, you know, screaming at Apple, you know, we need multitasking, we need multitasking, you know, kind of like the way Android has multitasking. I actually was not one of those guys. I didn't really care about whether or not the iPhone got multitasking because I'm not convinced. I mean, even what they've got now is not really multitasking in the sense that developers think about it. It's more just an easier way to do task switching. I mean, iPhone 4 now has basically the moral equivalent of an alt-tab button. Right. But... You know, I'm concerned that if we go down this path further and further and further, people are going to start writing apps. They're going to start draining battery and, 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 you know, using up signal and doing things in the background. And ultimately, the consumer experience is going to suffer. Roger Heim on Twitter says, uh, uh, Eclipse kind of sucks. What about JetBrains, IDE, IntelliJ? Any comments I on that one? I love it. I love it. I think that is by far and away the best IDE in the Java space, without a doubt. Without a doubt, it is. And, and to be fair, some of this is, you know, just the way in which I think about development and idea. Uh, Eclipse, my biggest beef with Eclipse is it has this notion of workspace, which is not really, it doesn't really correspond to a solution. It's more like a bunch of solutions that are all supposed to be somehow related, et cetera. It's, it's kind of weird and bizarre, and I don't, I don't, I mean, I get it intellectually, but I don't feel it viscerally. An idea 
follows that same basic. You're working with a project. Great. Here is your project. Here are the files around that project. Here's the things you want to do around that project, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Idea more naturally maps the way that I want to work. And so for me, there's much less friction when using it compared to Eclipse. Um, interestingly enough, there's also uh, Sun's, I'm sorry, Oracle's offering. <laughs> Boy, that's going to be a hard one to break. <laughs> yeah. There's also uh, NetBeans, which is um, you know the the, the Sun slash Oracle IDE, and, and NetBeans used to be one of those things where it's like you didn't even mention it in polite company. It's wow. Just, you know, it was that bad, and they've really gotten to be a lot better over the years to the point where I would probably rank it as my number two choice ahead of Eclipse. Really? Really? How, how did that happen? Just. You know, less friction, less, you know, l- l- I don't have to go hunting around and figuring out how to do stuff as much in, in, in NetBeans as I do in Eclipse. Is it just less stuff? No, I mean, there's a ton of different plugins for it. Uh, so if you want to, you know, blow it out your IDE as badly as Eclipse is, you can <laughs> certainly do that. I, I, I can't, I mean, I haven't really done an exhaustive study of the subject. Right. You know, this is where it would be great to have, you know, Mark Miller with his, you know, science of great UI, because he's done that study. He's done the, that analysis. I would love for him to play around with those IDEs for a while and, and, and tell me, in some respects, what it is that I don't like about Eclipse, why that just feels awkward and clumsy and, and huge compared to some of the others. You know how you feel, but you can't necessarily point to what's making you feel that. So, right, Ted, exactly. we've, we've been talking a lot on this, uh, this weekend about HTML5. Mm-hmm. Everybody seems to have uh, an opinion about you know, how various levels of support uh, will play out in the future by various companies. What, what's your thought about HTML5? You know... I'm kind of mad on the whole thing. I, I just, I, 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 I don't know. I, I find it hard to get excited about HTML5 versus, you know, anything else. To me, um, I like the fact that, that HTML5 is trying to get back to some of the core idea of a markup language and, you know, let's, let's not spend so much time thinking about uh, the how, but let's just specify the what and, you know, let's just say this is what we want to display and we'll let you know, uh, people customize it using CSS and using JavaScript and what have you to make it look a particular way on a particular platform, blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, to me, uh, HTML5 is, is it's almost become kind of a commodity thing. It's just something that I expect. I expect that HTML will be there. I expect that if there is a new version of HTML, all the various players that use HTML will eventually support it. I just, I mean, to me, that's just kind of a commodity. It's kind of like if they came out with a new version of HTTP, you know, people will support it because if they don't, people will turn around and say, well, why don't you support this? I, I love the fact that Microsoft is getting behind it. I love the fact that, you know, Microsoft seems to be excited by it because, uh, you know, that will certainly make it quicker for it to sort of percolate throughout the various stacks that I develop on. Mm. But on the whole, I just, you know, yeah. I don't know. I just have a hard time getting excited Richard by it. Richard kind of has a, a feeling that it'll spark a full-on browser war, the likes of which we haven't seen since Fire, you know, not Firefox, uh, you know, Netscape versus IE. But uh, Dave Ward sent us an email. He says, hey, guys, no worries about HTML5 taking us back to the cross-browser nightmares of a decade ago. 
Libraries like jQuery and almost almost completely abstract away those browser DOM inconsistencies. Since the new HTML5 elements are just HTML, a lot of the purely semantic elements, for example, article, nav, section, those tags already work in most browsers. They can even be shoehorned back into old browsers, including IE6. <gasps> IE6! Using a bit of JavaScript... Uh, HTML5 isn't an all-or-nothing monolithic technology. It's all about progressive enhancement. Sites are already using it today. Twitter is a good example. When you post a status from most browsers, it gives you the option of including a location that's based on it using IP geolocation. Using that same page in a browser like Mobile Safari that supports HTML5 geolocation lets you use the device's GPS for geolocation instead. It's good stuff. Yeah. Well, and, and you know... Honestly, uh, I think one of the big things that's going to help avoid the, the, the huge browser war is the fact that there is, there is a greater acceptance of running JavaScript than there was back in the, the mid-'90s. Yeah. You know, back then, you know, JavaScript was considered a security risk. And I remember the U.S. government at one point had put out a, a recommendation that said, no government website should require JavaScript. As a matter of fact, government employees were required to turn JavaScript off in their browsers because it's a security risk. And I never quite figured out where the threat model was there, but what that meant was you couldn't really do JavaScript. You remember the days you know, when sites had to carry a, a disclaimer saying, hey, yeah. you, know, you, you need to turn on JavaScript and you need to turn on cookies in order to get the best experience out of this site. Today, you know, that's, that's an assumed thing. If it's not turned on, you know, you tell the user, hey, by the way, this is, this is why, you know, looking at the site, you see just one, like, random blinking character. You need to turn on cookies and, and JavaScript to make this work. And, you know, I don't know anybody who has them turned off at this point. Well, and because the reality is a huge chunk of the Internet is simply not available to you. Well, and also the browsers have gotten a lot more uh, hip to a lot of the attacks that we were getting back then i think that's probably the biggest thing is that you could do more damage with javascript back then than you can today i'm not even sure how much damage you could do back then i mean i was working on a web app um at uh, pacific bell at the time and and you know when when this particular uh you know us government is disallowing javascript et cetera, et cetera and and I actually went and, and, and you know read through all the specs and, and played around with uh, both the Netscape and the IE browsers. I mean, I literally was trying on my box to see you know what could I get a hold of. And really, the only thing that I could see, I mean, barring any bugs in the browser, um, which you know there will always be bugs and there will always be vulnerabilities because of bugs. Uh, barring that, the the worst that I ever could do was look at all of the cookies that were sent by the browser to the site, you know, within your browser cache. So I could see, you know, other sites that you had visited. And, you know, so, I mean, I guess if you'd visited a naughty website, I could find out about it and say, shame, shame, you visited a naughty website. But I couldn't tell you necessarily where you'd been or what you'd done unless I understood what the cookie was storing, which a lot of times was just a GUID because they just needed a session identifier. So that doesn't do you much good. You know, it just there, there, there didn't seem to be a real huge security risk here. But you know, it, it, in some cases, it doesn't matter. It, the truth doesn't matter so much as the perception of the truth for a lot of these things. 
and the perception was these were bad, so we all had to avoid it. And now, today, everybody's just, you know, either we're more complacent or we just got tired of all the security screaming or what. Now we're okay with it. So now we can rely on those JavaScript libraries to isolate us and insulate us from the various browser differences. And, you know, I think uh, I think that's a good thing. I think that'll make, at least for our lives as developers, I think that'll make things a lot easier. Yeah, I do think that the uh, the JavaScript scare was a scare that people didn't understand what it what it necessarily is. It was having. I'm sorry, you guys, but there were real problems with the browsers allowing things, not just in JavaScript, but cross site scripting. Uh, you know, all there were all sorts of of hacks that, and then I'm specifically thinking about IE six time. You know, there were so many uh, exploitable little things that you could do, and most of them. Were started from JavaScript. It wasn't necessarily the language or anything that had to do it, but it, you know that's just a way to automate things in the browser. But uh, really, what put a stop to it was XP Service Pack two. That uh, sort you know the the built-in firewall that's on by default. Now it, mm-hmm. Windows Windows firewall is on by default. I mean, people are aren't having those kinds of problems today. So. Let's move along. We Do you got... have any thoughts on Oracle Sun software product focus for collaboration? This is from Michael Thomas via Twitter. Um, well, I mean, certainly I think, um, I think Oracle is going to look at the series of offerings from Sun, and I think they're going to start doing some, uh, some cherry-picking slash uh, pruning I think they're going to go through some of the things that, that Sun has thrown out there over the years and say, you know, we're not going to support this anymore, we're not going to support that anymore. Um, one of those, I think you may see Sun back out of one of the two open source databases they currently own, because they own both uh, MySQL and Postgres. Right. And both of those are kind of aimed at the same market space. Well, yeah, I, I, I find the po- I, I thought Postgres stood on its own, actually. It, it was uh, it's been you know sort of released into the wild. There was a bunch of developers at Sun that worked on Postgres, but it was well, and that's true of MySQL as well, right? I mean, Sun when Sun Sun owned Postgres long before they acquired MySQL, and you know what does it mean to acquire an open source product? I'm not entirely sure. Right, to be blunt with you, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I did an interview once with uh, two guys from Sun. Uh, and basically, you know, one of them was a MySQL guy, one of them was a Postgres guy, you know, kind of, I mean, the question was, why aren't the two of you beating the crap out of each other on, on TV here, as opposed to, you know, con- trying to convince us all that this actually is a move that makes sense. And the net result was really, you know, well, these are two different databases geared at two different markets, trying to accomplish two different things, but they could never drill into specifics. I couldn't quite get, you know, what exactly, when would I want to use MySQL, and when would I want to use Postgres? And I think Oracle, particularly, being a database company first, and being one that is, let's be honest, ruthlessly pragmatic with respect to how they conduct business, I think that they're going to cast one of them completely loose. I think those developers who currently work on MySQL that are drawing a paycheck from Sun or the ones who are working on Postgres that draw a paycheck from Sun, I think they're going to be told very bluntly, find a new job within the company or find a new job, period. Right. I just don't think Oracle is going to see 
a need to sink money into that. Um, you know, uh, beyond that, the Oracle and Sun product offerings are actually amazingly complementary. There's very little overlap that I can think of in that space. Oracle uses a, a lot of Java for the products that they build. Uh, somebody commented, and I don't know if this was just a passing comment or if this is a true fact, but somebody commented that Oracle is the biggest uh, user of Java software, which I can kind of believe, given how much you know they, how much product they produce and how much of it is written in Java, and you know how many licenses that spawns, et cetera, et cetera. And you know the Oracle J developer stack has never really been well regarded within the Java space, right? So if they kill that, I don't think anybody will notice, quite frankly. <laughs> um, you know, and, and within, uh, you know, within some of the other software spaces, I mean, um, Oracle had already acquired um, the, uh, uh, the former BEA uh, product offering, uh, WebLogic. Right. Right. They, they, they had already bought that years before. And so, you know, what we may see is, is Glassfish which is Sun's application server, we may see that get retooled to be more of a community open source offering. But even there, you know, I don't know that, that Oracle feels this real strong need to support the I don't want to give anybody any money contingent. Right. Um, and I think that's going to be the biggest thing for Java developers. I think that's going to create the biggest amount of angst. Uh, and I remember saying this you know, a year ago whenever we had that conversation. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of Java developers are used to getting things handed to them for free, and I think Oracle's not going to enable that anymore. I think you know Java developers are going to have to start trying to get you know budget approval from their bosses, just as a lot of Microsoft developers have to do that in order to buy like the Infragistics suite or whatnot. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, I think that that will help slim down some of the bloat that we see in the Java ecosystem. Um, I think there's a lot of people out there who are saying, oh, no, no, it has to be free and it has to be, you know, it has to be open source and, you know, you're not any good if you have to pay any money for it and yada, yada, yada. But part of the thing is commercialism creates accountability. And if your thing sucks, you don't really know it until people stop giving you money for it. Well, and the other point to be made is that all, look at what's happened to all of these free platforms. Oracle owns them all now for a reason. Right? They didn't make it. They, you know, these companies have all struggled, and uh, and Oracle sort of pulled all that together. You know, one could argue, why should they own either free database? Why not cast them both free? Last time I looked, they had a pretty good database product of their own. Well, part of the thing is, if you want to go after the, the small to medium business market, uh, these are guys who don't have a tremendous amount of, of cash on hand to be able to spend on stuff like this. Right. I mean, this is the same reason why Microsoft offers SQL Server Express. There is, there is a sizable amount of money to be made, and it sounds strange saying this, but there's a sizable amount of money to be made by offering your stuff up for free because it gets people kind of hooked. You're basically going after that. As you scale up, now you'll want more features. Now you'll want to pay us some money because if you're scaling up, it means that you're being more successful, which means that you're making more money, which means that you have the opportunity to give us some of that. And that market, I mean, that, that I think makes sense. You know, the, the first one's free, kid, but, you know, now you're hooked and now you're going to have to start making regular payments. 
that does mean they have to build a clean migration path from MySQL to Oracle, because that's the and, whole thing with yeah. SQL Express, is that it is actually the same engine, and you could switch it to the full version in a minute. Yeah, and and if you know if that's not already underway then you know then then somebody is clearly falling asleep on the job i mean right. i have a feeling that that was part of the acquisition plan for uh you know for sun for oracle is to figure out a which of the two databases or let I me mean, you know you have a point and oracle certainly has been less free minded than any other software company out there yeah. you know, they may say screw it we don't need either of these and they may just turn around and cast them loose both of them but even in that case, it still behooves Oracle. And I believe they've already got migration tools that take you from MySQL to full-blown Oracle or Postgres to full-grown Oracle. Oracle had a personal edition, which they were trying to push out there as a, a uh, uh, sort of a MySQL replacement to do exactly the same thing that SQL Express does. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, somebody fact-checked me on this, but I believe Oracle also bought Berkeley DB, which is one of the more popular flat file database yep. systems. They bought them like yep. four or five years ago, right? They did, did indeed, yeah. I, we, we use it at Strangeloop. Yeah, and, you know, that's still available, and everybody was concerned at the time that that was going to, you know, oh, Oracle bought it so they could kill it. Well, no, they, they kept it alive. They, they continued to, to work on it and offer bug fixes and whatnot. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just kind of business as usual. And I think, again, Oracle there is saying, yeah, that's a popular small-scale database, but when you get to a point where you want to get something larger scale, why don't you go with a company whose products you're already familiar with, whose right. community you're already familiar with? You know, you just, just go with the addiction. Whose evil licensing model you're already familiar with. Exactly, exactly. Only Oracle's licensing works like this. Hey, we want to buy your product. Great. How much money have you got? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, the best, the the real fun is, right, get a hold of three different Oracle sales reps. Yep. You know, and and ask each of them what the price is to do X. You will get three wildly different answers. But, you know, try that with Microsoft products, too. As soon as you're buying anything more than a copy of Office, right, you start talking. The licensing system in general is terrifying yeah yeah i hate to end the conversation like that but we're out of time (laughs) always fun talking to you ted let's 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 leave them with something positive um kittens uh uh, singing sweets uh, birds in the in the field being eaten by kittens no that doesn't work i'm out i I got nothing no he's got nothing ted newer thanks so much for coming on the show thanks guys .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.